Good afternoon again. Um, if you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John 3, or you can follow along the same text. It's just one verse is there in your bulletin. Uh, we're starting a series for these uh, weeks of Advent today called the Christmas War. Not the war on Christmas, the Christmas War, the one that Jesus came to wage, uh, which is not usually the primary motif that you think about during Advent. Um, when you think about the question of why did Jesus come to earth, our minds often run in the very biblical notions that he came to rescue people from their rebellion against God. He, Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, the Apostle Paul said. And uh, that's true. Uh, but you also get a lot of language, more than I usually realize when I'm just glancing at the uh, stories of Jesus coming and the announcement of that. A lot of stories about Jesus coming as a conquering king. That um, he's coming to reclaim the throne of the world as the rightful king and set things back the way that they're supposed to be. The things that have been ruined by uh, our usurping his place and things that have been ruined by the devil himself. And these things Jesus has come to set back right. So his incarnation is like an invasion where he's come to pick a fight with everything that uh, is ruinous in his world, all of the vandalism in his world against the way things are supposed to be. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, in these few weeks, looking at Jesus' intention to come to uh, redress cruelty and tyranny, uh, to uh, relieve those who are under oppression, uh, corruption and evil, and rescue his people. And talk about what it means to have a resistance movement uh, in the battle that Jesus has uh, waged and is waging in the world against what's broken. And so that's what I want us to think about. And today we're going to kind of have an overview of that and do something I was told not to do in, uh, when I was taught how to preach, which is jump around and look at quite a number of passages that uh, lay this idea out just so that you can see how it comes out in the Scripture but all jumping off of this text in 1 John that says Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture and go from there. Father, we ask that as uh, we're gathered to hear your word that you would come and meet with us. Um, we could go through this as an exercise in information so that we could uh, think differently and maybe better. But we want more than that. We want to know you. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word and do your dealings with us. Open our hearts and our minds to you as we listen. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The devil. Um, when was the last time you talked about the devil in a conversation with someone? Especially someone outside the church. It's a primitive sounding idea, isn't it? Evil, the devil. If you're, if you're writing scripts for movies or TV shows maybe. But uh, to talk about these things seriously, meaningfully, is pretty odd in the way, I mean in the place we live. But we're called on to try to understand 
the nature of our brokenness. Like, what is wrong with us and what is wrong with this world? How do you account for the kind of evil that exists in the world, the kind of uh, gratuitous cruelty that you see in the world? I mean, the most well-accepted explanations of these things are biological now, right? It's just DNA. Maybe environmental, you know, behavioral raising has shaped you to be who you are. Uh, maybe it's just bad genes, um, but we have a difficult time moving beyond that to say something's causative uh, for the evil we see in the world. I don't know if you remember in, um, when Clarice was talking to Hannibal Lecter and that terrifying story. Um, her question to him was, what happened to you? What happened to you? In other words, what made you this way? And he said, nothing happened to me. I happened. Can't you just admit that I'm evil? And, of course, she struggled with that the same way we do. It's hard. We look for some other explanation. But our explanations about DNA and uh, the ways in which we were raised, the joker notwithstanding, right, um, don't answer the question fully enough about why people are as broken as they are. You know, you see in nature, in the animal world, there's violence, but there's not torture. There's not cruelty. There's nothing gratuitous in what we see in nature. There are no suicide vests, right? Uh, these kind of things are unique to us. Cartels and their cruelty are unique to us. And I don't know if you can explain that all just through biology and sociology. The crimes of Auschwitz were not crimes of passion, and they were not crimes of ignorance. They were clear-headed people who were well-educated, who probably flattered themselves that they were good people, who ran the gas ovens in Auschwitz. How do you account for this kind of evil? And if you're at all honest and introspective, how do you account for yourself? How do you account for your capacity uh, to be cruel and petty and envious and vindictive? How do you account for it? The Bible's accounting for it is pretty complicated. I mean, it's not, it doesn't say just one thing. It doesn't say it's only your DNA that makes you do this. It's your parents and how they raised you, and that's why you behave this way. It doesn't say it's um, just uh, physical. It doesn't say it's just sociological that how you were raised is the shaping influence, and that's the reason you are the way you are and do the things you do. It doesn't discount those things, but it doesn't say that's all that there is. Um, individual responsibility and just our own deliberate mean choices are a big part of the Bible's explanation. But the Bible also has a category for personal supernatural evil. Uh, that is, uh, beings that we do not see that influence us uh, both to tempt us and to stir up evil in the world. Uh, real beings, uh, fallen angels, demons and the devil. And these are things that are a strange dinner conversation for us today, but uh, Jesus believed in these things, and uh, he seemed pretty clear on these subjects. He talked about and to uh, these sorts of beings pretty regularly in his ministry. And when he came to fix what's broken in the world and what's broken in us, part of what has to be fixed is that the devil has to be defeated and his works have to be destroyed as John says in this passage. 
uh, the devil's works have to be torn down and destroyed. Now, that's a big answer to what Christmas is all about. Um, It's not the most sentimental answer to what Christmas is all about, to say that Jesus came to uh, wage war on injustice and wage war on tyranny and oppression. Um, But listen to the Christmas songs a little bit and see if you don't hear these themes very strongly present in our Christmas hymns, that uh, Jesus' birth was the opening salvo in his war against the devil to tear down the devil's works. So I want us to think about that a little bit. Uh, first, I want to give you kind of an overview kind of through the Bible about how strong this theme is. It's the story of the world is that God uh, intends to set the world back right side up by putting the rightful king on the throne who will reign in justice. Uh, ever since we uh, crashed the world through our rebellion in Eden, as we heard in our Old Testament reading, Uh, God has promised not to destroy his rebellious world, but to restore it, to reconcile people to himself and to fix the world that he's created. So he said uh, to the serpent, he said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You will strike her heel. She will crush your head. It's the first promise that God is going to fix his world, that he's not willing to let us perish and be destroyed because of our rebellion against him. Eve thought Cain, Cain was uh, the redeemer. Right? The way she talks about that in the Hebrew, it seems pretty clear that, that she thinks Cain is going to be the redeemer, but not yet. He isn't the redeemer yet. What you get are promises about a king who's going to come and set things right. You can think of a lot of places, but the second psalm is one of the profound ones where God says, I've established my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and the kings of the earth should tremble before him and kiss him, lest he be angry. Right? The rightful king is coming to redress injustice. When the angel spoke to Mary and told her she was going to have this child, she sang in the Magnificat, her famous song, that this one is going to come to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's going to end injustice when he comes, the effect of his rule. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Romans 16, talking about the church, says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Speaking to the church. And Colossians 2 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. You know, this language is pretty common in the Bible. But if you're, if you're like me, maybe because I'm nervous about militaristic language, uh, maybe because I don't understand this as well, I gloss over this and I, I gravitate to the parts that talk about um, sin and forgiveness and going to heaven. All right? But the Bible talks a lot about this. is why Jesus came is to wage this war against the devil. And Revelation 12 may be the, certainly the most picturesque description of it where you have this, uh, this great battle described between the woman and the dragon. And the, the uh, dragon representing Satan, the woman representing the church most likely. But it says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That this is the culmination of, of Jesus' work is the destruction of the devil and his works. So... 
Um, I don't know how familiar you are with these passages, but as you read, you'll see them. And as you listen to Christmas songs, you'll hear the themes. The thing that's not being said here is, is, a, uh, is that there's a, a war between uh, two equal powers in heaven, a dualistic idea of the evil and the good fighting and struggling, kind of like the two sides of the force or something. Um, the devil is not a rival deity to God. Never is he portrayed that way in the Bible. Uh, but his kingdom is a rival kingdom in our lives and experience to the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And so the battle is between these kingdoms. Satan is uh, not co-equal with God and um, not, not to be feared as if he were or spoken of with respect as if he were. Um, second thing that this is not is uh, this is not a battle against people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says in Ephesians. So this war that Jesus comes to wage doesn't pit us against other human beings. Right, as Christians called to join in to this resistance movement, our battle is not against other people. Uh, so our means are not political means or coercive or violent means. We don't grab our narwhal tusks and race in to fix things. Nope. I was seeing if anybody knew about the narwhal tusk from this weekend, but, you know. Also, if you're playing a pastoral bingo and you had narwhal tusk, you can check that off now. Um, but we don't use weapons in this war. I mean, this is a war waged through a manger and a cross. <laughs> this is not a military uh, epi- um, adventure. If we forget this and think that the war is against other people, then we begin to demonize and hate other people, which we're never called to do as Jesus' agents in this war. His own disciples ran into this when the Samaritan village uh, rejected his teaching because he was on the way to Jerusalem and they were pretty prejudiced against Jews. Uh, James and John said, you want that we should call down fire from heaven on them? And Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. Um, that's not the nature of our war. Uh, we don't use guns. We don't use coercion. Um, we don't bring down judgment. It's, it's an odd thing, though, because the Bible uses this militaristic language to describe these things, even though we're called not to be militaristic. So um, you have to make that clear. And it's, if you're speaking to people outside the faith and you just use these terms... It's very easy to be misunderstood that you're thinking about a Christian jihad or some kind of a a power grab on the part of Christians. And that's not what we're called to do. That's not what Jesus' war is. All right. So and then the last qualification here is this war is not where Jesus comes to rescue the goodies and set them against the baddies. Right. This isn't where the good people are finally vindicated and the bad people are finally uh, crushed because If it were, we would all be crushed, right? There are no goodies. There are no people for Jesus to come vindicate because they've been so good. Um, All of us are enslaved and held captive by the devil, is what the Bible says. Which sounds like crazy talk. I mean, it's a pretty narrow slice of the population that would say, yep, that's me. Uh, I'm enthralled to the devil, Um, I love Anton LaVey's writings and love Satanism. Almost no one ever has or does say such things. 
right? Uh, the Bible says, though, Jesus says, to upright religious people who are trying very hard to be good and very hard to serve him, he says to them that you are of your father, the devil. He says this to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. So when the passage here says that um, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, it really means all of us. right? We are born naturally into that kingdom. It's a rival kingdom. It's the kingdom of autonomy and pride that says I will run my own life. I will make myself good. Um, I will uh, make up my own religions and my own morality and I will keep them assiduously. Um, This is the devil's lie from Eden, and it is the way he extends his kingdom now. All of us basically are captives with Stockholm Syndrome. Like we've uh, been taken captive by the devil to do his will, and that's how the Bible says it, um, and have come to be complicit with him, that we have embraced our captor. Like We love pride. We love autonomy. We love the idea that we'll be God in our own life and for ourselves, our own judges, our own saviors. And in doing so, this war of autonomy uh, puts us in cahoots with the unseen personal supernatural powers of evil. That's why to become a Christian is to become a turncoat, basically, to say I'm, I'm changing kingdoms, I'm changing sides in this war. My namesake, four generations back, Charles Garland, uh, we found out because some fool in our family decided to do genealogies, uh, fought on both sides of the war between the states <laughs> and retired with a union pension. So on one hand, you've got to give him credit for um, uh, figuring out who was going to win, but you know, the idea of someone who would fight on both sides of a war sounds like a terrible and untrustworthy person. Right? Uh, but that's who we all are as Christians. Uh, we are those who have uh, uh, become traitors to our old liege and now have uh, taken on the uniform and the arms of Jesus in his war against our old kingdom. Man, that sounds so uh, odd and dramatic. To say and to try to understand your life in those terms seems uh, bizarre to our ears, but the Bible speaks this way quite a lot, and it's a very helpful way for us to think about our lives now. Um, but it brings up problems for me. I don't know how it hits you to think that way, that now you've been put on Jesus' side. He's rescued you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of his Son, so that now you're on, in Jesus' kingdom, and you're an agent of that kingdom. And that you join his battle to push back against what's broken and oppressive in the world. And that's who you are now. And what it does is it, it puts your thinking about obedience and rebellion in personal terms. So Christian morality, then it becomes less a matter of whether or not you're keeping or breaking the rules abstractly, and it becomes more relational, where you're saying, uh, am I being loyal or disloyal to Jesus? So that uh, we see our obedience and service to him in personal and warm terms, not in abstract morality terms. 
right? Am I doing what brings honor to him, or am I betraying him? And uh, um, so the idea of Christianity isn't that you try to be good so you don't need Jesus very much. (laughs) The idea is you've been rescued by him, and that turns your heart out to love him and want to please him and want to pour honor on your champion. It's a, it's a different way of thinking about obedience, I think, than what we normally engage in. The problem, though, is um, if you think about it that way, it makes you feel like a terrible Christian. Like, I'm supposed to be loyal to my new champion, my new king, Jesus. He's rescued me. He's done everything for me. He's given it all to me freely as a gift. And now he's set me in the world to love and serve him and to strike blows against uh, oppression and evil. And every time I sin, I'm a betrayer. I'm a Judas. Every time I sin. And you think, oh, I'm the worst Christian ever. How can I ever feel happy about being in Jesus' kingdom when I feel like I'm just a terrible soldier? I'm a liability. I'm I'm defeated and despairing. There's no way I could be useful to him. There's no way I could be pleasing to him. He's bound to be constantly disappointed with me and despising of me. And when you start to think in these terms of obedience as loyalty rather than just rule-keeping, it's discouraging. Um, And it should be because it's true. You're not ever uh, qualified to fight in Jesus' kingdom. You're never qualified to be a member of it because you've behaved well. No one is. Um, You're never good enough to set your heart at rest that you've been a good, loyal, faithful servant of Jesus' and that he's only happy with you and never disappointed. I mean, if you're looking to be that good, you're going to drive yourself in the ground because nobody's that good. Jesus doesn't have people better than you that he looks at and says, well, at least I've got these people who are good because, you know, Tim and William aren't, right? There aren't many people who are better Christians than you when it comes down to it, not much better. Uh, Every honest Christian looks at this and says, I I feel ashamed, not uh, emboldened as uh, someone who serves Jesus in the world. I feel like a liability. But I want to remind you, about the nature of this war. Jesus did not come to rescue the goodies, right? The good people who uh, deep down have good hearts that he knows, and so he comes to their rescue. That's not the nature of his war. Uh, He came to liberate us, even though we were capped when we were captives, but not to reward us because we were good. For instance, we read in the gospel reading today about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness beginning of his ministry, you know, where the devil comes and tempts him and he responds. He, he responds with scripture each time and wins his battle against the devil. And what do we learn from that? Well, we learn that if we're tempted, we should quote scripture uh, to the devil, too, and we will be victorious over the devil as well. Right. No, <laughs> that's not at all what that's talking about. It's talking about Jesus Victory over the devil, him winning the battle that Adam lost, that he defeated the devil for us. He's the one who resisted the devil. He's the one who, to use language from the Gospels, binds the strong man so his house can be spoiled. He's not giving us instructions about how to do that ourselves. It's ridiculous to think of us uh, defeating Satan ourselves. Jesus is our champion, and he's come to rescue us. What do you contribute to your liberation? Nothing. You're there, right? You get liberated. 
like a prisoner of war when the Allies rolled in to Germany. You, you are liberated. That's, that is the nature of the war. That is the nature of why you're on his side now. It's not because you've defeated the devil too. Or he thinks that maybe you will before long. That's not the idea. He's rescued us because he wants us. Because he's willing to love us. And his love isn't going to change towards us. It's not like he doesn't know you and know how fickle you are and know how, what a weak Christian you are. Of course he knows that. Those are the people that he rescues. People like us. The people he wants. People like us. And the strange thing is this, and this is what is very hard to believe day to day, is that because you've been rescued by him, because you've been forgiven by him and put in this relationship with him that can't change, your weak efforts matter to him. Your weak contributions to his kingdom matter to him. Your partial obedience pleases him. He's not fooled by it. He does, it's not that he doesn't see your motives. But he's pleased by them. The things that are wrong in your service to him are things that he has forgiven. So your cloudy motives don't keep you from serving him. The smallness of your works and gifts, the smallness of your energy and effort, don't make him less pleased with you. When you repent quickly after you sin, you strike a blow against the kingdom of the devil. And you pour honor on your champion. And you think, no, it wasn't perfect. I shouldn't have needed to repent in the first place. And nope, angels rejoice when sinners repent. You're in, you're loved, you're forgiven. Your small efforts are used by Jesus in his kingdom. Anytime you pray for his kingdom to come, even if it's not a very earnest or fervent prayer, uh, you strike a blow for the sake of his kingdom. Every time you give a dollar... To his cause in the world. You strike a blow for his kingdom. Every time you resist a temptation. You strike a blow for his kingdom. You pour honor on your champion. You know how the, the uh, recovery people. Uh, use one day coins. If you've been clean for a day. You get a coin for that at a meeting. Uh, that's a very biblical notion. Uh, one day coins are a big part of the kingdom. If you, if you didn't look at what you weren't supposed to look at Today. You've struck a blow for the kingdom. You may still feel miserable about embarrassing behavior from yesterday. But um, resisted temptations are blows struck for the kingdom. They pour honor on your champion. And this is, it's it's a weak analogy, but because of his mercy, God is willing to look at our service to him like a parent looks at a kid's artwork. You know, if you have people with young children, they've got pictures on the refrigerator that are terrible, right? But they love them because the kid did it, right? Um, our obedience is received by Jesus that way. Um, it's not that good. He knows that. He's under no delusions. But his affection for you and his mercy in your life mean that he can accept imperfect obedience and uh, make it beautiful and use it for his kingdom. Anytime you avoid retaliation uh, when you feel vindictive, anytime you extend forgiveness, you're striking a blow for his kingdom and pouring honor on your champion. And so it's not, it's not presumptuous or self-righteous to say, I'm in Jesus' kingdom, and what I do every day in my work, and what I do every day with my family, with my children, with my neighbors, 
is agency for his kingdom. Like I'm a part of the war that he came uh, to wage against what's broken in this world. Um, it's not, it's not self-aggrandizing to speak that way. Uh, because there's nothing for you to be proud of in it. Uh, you're only that because of his mercy in your life. So, um, if you tell people that they're completely and unchangeably loved, though, and that their partial obedience is a delight to God, won't that make them slackers? Don't you think, really? Like, if you say, you don't have to be that great, you don't have to give that much money away, you don't have to be this bold in your conversations, because Jesus is merciful, so it's just going to make people slackers if you talk that way, right? But that's not true, and it's not how we're really motivated. I mean, take parents as an example. Does, does feeling really loved and unchangeably accepted by your parents make you want to be more loyal to them or less loyal to them? Make you more careful about how you speak about them to other people or less careful about how you speak about them to other people? Their affection for you that won't change uh, makes you more loyal to them. Does a marriage commitment make you more or less loyal uh, to the person who's pledged undying, unchanging love for you for the rest of your life? Does it make you more eager to do what pleases them and delights them, to pour honor on their heads, or less motivated to do that? It's more, right? And it's the same way with us. We're His. He's conquered us, brought us home to Him, and... It's his unchanging love that motivates us to be loyal to him, to want to be a part of his kingdom, and to want to see it come and spread. So you're not a poser as a Christian. Unless, you know, you're a poser. The, unless you're like an open hypocrite saying, I'm pretending uh, to believe in Jesus, but I really don't. You're not a poser. Christians are broken. Christians feel disloyal all the time. Christians become more and more aware of their sins and their motives and feel more and more disappointed in themselves and their uh, behavior as they get better and better as Christians. And I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. The most mature Christians in here are the ones who are the most aware of their failures, the most aware of their brokenness. And so, you know, good for you if you're a young Christian. You're not going to go climbing from heights to heights, becoming more holy and more sanctimonious and less tempted the rest of your life. That's not how it works. Um, But you're not a poser. That means that you're in the game, that Jesus is at work in your life, and he wants you with him. You're a liberated captive. And part of the works of the devil that Jesus is tearing down are the devil's works in your life. And it's going to take a lifetime to do it. So don't be surprised by that. Stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. Uh, You're on the winning side of this war that Jesus has come to wage. I've added a song to my Christmas playlist. It's uh, Robert Plant's version of the old spiritual song, Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. You know that song, Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. I heard the voice of Jesus Christ say, Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down. I'm going to pray till they tear your kingdom down. Pray till they tear your kingdom down. I heard the voice of Jesus Christ say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. It's what Jesus came into the world to do.
Now let's pray.